Miss the show? No worries, we've got you covered on point and on the podcast. A slippery slope of Bill C-7 and changes that would open up the right to die to the mentally ill and to the vulnerable. And we hear a very personal story from someone who shares his mental illness and says he'd be dead today if that choice were given to him back then. New gun legislation once again targets legal gun owners but does nothing to go after gang and gun crime. But hey, if it distracts us from Trudeau's COVID failures then it's served its purpose. And with the threat of China to this country and two Michaels incarcerated, why would the federal government allow a partnership with our universities? Let's get talking. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. By getting through to you, that's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. listening. When it comes to keeping Canadians safe from gun violence, we need more than thoughts and prayers. We need concrete action. And yet the Prime Minister announced anything but concrete action. But hey, you know, as long as we're not talking about his vaccine failures, then we'll talk about his useless gun laws. But today, of course, the day that I think a lot of parents started getting sanity back, certainly mine, the kiddies getting back to a bit of normal in school. And, of course, there were, you know, there were the moans and groans in our household, mainly, mainly because my son has gotten so used to being half-dressed all the time and rolling all over the floor trying to learn. And he had to actually get dressed and to school and in his seat. But um, overall, he was pretty excited to get back to his friends and teachers and, of course, the new snow all over the place. And uh, then when I picked him up, he proclaimed, today was the best day ever, Mommy. So that was, uh, that was good to hear. That was uh, music to my ears. Certainly um, the first day, I think in what, six weeks? It's hard to imagine. This. Six, eight weeks, six weeks? That I could actually focus on work. It's weird. So I just pray that the kids stay safe. I pray they stay in school and, um, and we keep giving them this structure, you know, because they need it. And, of course, the uh, variants, the variants are the next big threat. Now there are variants of variants. Uh, the U.K. I was reading about is dealing with a variant of the U.K. variant. There's also a Nigerian variant. And, of course, cases are coming down, but it's uh, the next wave. It's going to be a third wave that doctors describe as this perfect storm. So it's much more severe than the first two waves, and it'll be driven by these more aggressive variants, which have now been tracked and traced and uh, documented in 10 provinces. Even Atlantic Canada is uh, no longer protected by that bubble. I'm not sure if you heard Newfoundland has uh, spiked 300 cases. They had no cases at all. Now they've got 300 cases thanks to the variant. And here in Ontario, you know, we get the kids back. We're trying to open the economy. And it's all being done against this backdrop of noise where these medical experts insist that we, you know, stay locked down. And I mean, sure, it's easy for them to say. It's easy for everyone to say. You know, if you're not the one locked down or if you're, you know, watching your business being destroyed, um, certainly if you've got a steady, steady paycheck, then you can say that. I just keep thinking, like, if those in charge, if they would just do what they need to do before it's too late, like, you know, shut borders earlier or, I don't know, rapid test millions, you know, we would not be upside down and backwards. I mean, maybe if we had vaccines. <laughs> Pouring in, 
you know, we wouldn't have to worry about that third wave. Um, Israel is just rocking it. Man, oh man. Israel is rocking it. They've seen a 94% drop in cases because they have vaccinated so quickly. And so the vaccines work. You just got to have them. Which then brings us to why the Trudeau government would make this huge, big gun legislation announcement today. And, you know, I always say everything in politics is about timing. And certainly when you don't want the focus to be on failures. You've, you've got to put a nice, big, shiny distraction in the window, which is exactly what this is. And, you know, for Trudeau, it surely it checks off a box on his campaign promise in time for that election. He swears he doesn't want. But, you know, what he announced today is nothing more than a distraction because it's not going to do a darn thing to stop this never-ending cycle of murder on Toronto's streets. It will for sure appeal to the folks of downtown Toronto, but it does absolutely nothing to stop gangbangers from using our streets to carry out the carnage. So you really have to read beyond the headline and find the devil in the details because Trudeau really wants it to sound like he's getting tough on crime. We all know we'll be hearing from the well-funded gun lobby, and we all know there will be plenty of politics. But let's not forget what this is about, saving lives. We're not targeting law-abiding citizens who own guns to go hunting or for sport shooting. The measures we're proposing are concrete and practical. The only one playing politics is that guy. Because none of what was announced today does anything to go after the bad guys and gals. It certainly goes after the good ones. And we'll get into the nuts and bolts of what was announced today at uh, 7 o'clock with Tony Bernardo. But here were just some of the things kind of standing out uh, for me. Because you may or may not recall, last year the uh, Trudeau government banned 1,500 assault-style weapons. Like, first of all, we don't have assault weapons in Canada. We don't even have the classification. We don't have the kinds of guns you see used in American mass shooting. And they kept citing American mass shootings today, like Sandy Hook and all the rest. That's torqued language. That hasn't happened here. Even the shooting earlier this year, or in 2020 now, um, on the East Coast, did not have any resemblance to Sandy Hook or any other American mass shooting. But this bill would um, give municipalities to power, you know, the you know. They could do the, their own ban on handguns. They could do whatever they want as far as restricting possession, storage, transportation. And if you've read gun laws or you know anything about them currently, we have very strict laws on the books for all of this already. So this really goes after legal gun owners who already follow the rules. Because if they weren't, we would be telling you about them in the news all the time. And we don't, if ever. It does nothing, though. Because gangbangers don't register their illegal guns. They don't follow storage rules. They just carry their guns wherever they want with no fear of getting caught. And when they don't need them, they just rent them out to other gangbangers. So I thought it was pretty appalling. You know, you've got Bill Blair sitting up there citing the shooting of um, the 14-year-old girl over the last couple of days who somehow got shot in the head by a gun, and it was likely illegal while in her friend's house. 
And none of what was announced today would have stopped that girl from getting shot. So to exploit her, you know, to push this useless gun ban, I find pretty gross. They talked about this optional buyback program, none of none of which have worked in American cities where they have been used several times. Because what they established in the data that they gathered is that gangbangers, you know, they don't just trade in their guns, first of all. But if you've ever had a buyback program, it's just that people sell their gun and then buy a more expensive one, a new one. And Trudeau announced, you know, this is how I know he doesn't want to do anything to actually stop the problem. I got a bit excited because he said they would go after gun smuggling and trafficking. And I thought, okay, this is going somewhere. And then, then they announced $41 million bucks over five years to tackle what really is the key area of how illegal guns are coming in. So what, you're spending $5 million a year to stop illegal guns from coming in this country? I mean, give me a break. That's not going to do anything. And then they talk about these red and yellow flag laws that would um, allow someone, uh, a friend, maybe a relative, to go to the courts and file paperwork to have someone's gun taken away if they feel that they're a threat. Now, we already have laws in the books for this, again. So this would open up all sorts of problems you know, like, what if your neighbor just doesn't like you because he knows you got guns, and apparently, you know, all it takes is a, a court order you can go pick up at the court, and then you got the police banging down your door without a warrant. You good with that? No. Look, I, I don't like guns. I would never own a gun. But I have covered enough gun crime and court cases over the past two and a half decades to call BS where I see it. And all of what was announced today is just that. It's a festival it of BS is what it is. Yeah, you're right, Oakley. It is a distraction, you know, from, from the stinky dot job that they've done on vaccines. So, look, they hope they can buy up votes in downtown Toronto, and a lot of people will buy up this nonsense, thinking it's action. It is not. It is absolutely just a distraction from the real issues. But, hey, enjoy the headlines, because that's what they tried to get out of that today. Stay with us here on Point, starting a brand new week, a short one at that. Stay with us on Point on Global News Radio. There are some very big changes underway to something called Bill C-7, and this is an expansion to our assisted suicide laws now before the Senate, and I'm hoping they can bring some sober second thought to this. And those changes would include allowing people with mental illness or disabilities to apply to end their lives. And on the surface, I think many will just shrug their shoulders and say, well, that should be an individual's choice. But when one is the grips of, you know, when one is in the grips of a mental breakdown, you know, be it depression, anxiety, or maybe bouts of suicide, the decision one could make then might not be the choice that they would make if they actually got proper mental health supports and able to get a control of it. And over the weekend, I read a very personal opinion piece in the Globe and Mail by Andre Demis, and he wrote about his battles with severe anxiety, things like suicidal thoughts over the last few years that got even worse, of course, at the beginning of the pandemic. And he shares his story as a warning that had the options to end his life been available during these episodes, he would likely be dead today. Thankfully, he did get a proper diagnosis and those supports, and he has now got the stability to live a very full life, and he joins us now to talk about this. Good to have you, Andre. Hi there. And I should say, you uh, are a contributing editor, editor over at McLean's, and you write freelance, but this piece you wrote for the Globe and Mail, and, and this has been kind of a decades-long battle for you, but you felt compelled to share it. Why? Well, I, here's the thing. I don't like sharing 
these kinds of stories about myself. But unfortunately, what happens in most conversations about disability and mental health is that you are essentially forced to, for people to listen. And, uh, you know, the way that this conversation on medically assisted death has been going, it's been full steam ahead over the objections of people with disabilities who've said things not much different than what I've said, who've raised objections long before I've raised them, but unfortunately weren't being listened to. So after some conversations with friends of mine in the disability community that have been going very hard in the paint, uh, going to the Senate, having conversations with senators, uh, doing video testimony, et cetera, I made the decision to write this article out of a hope that people would at least take a second and think about what it is that we're getting into. You know, so many of us are just distracted by our own world of COVID that I don't think people really follow what's going on. But this is a really slippery slope for me because I'm okay with people. You know, if they have a terminal illness, they can choose what to do with their body. That's not my business. But when it comes to someone with a mental illness or let's say a disability um, and having this kind of access, I think it could be very easily abused because either a lack of clarity for the person suffering the mental illness or worse, you have someone pushing someone with a disability to do this because they assume that that person's suffering when they could be living a very happy life. We just don't understand that. Well, the thing with uh, disability and this concept of suffering is that, and I read this, this in the article, that is often how disability is viewed not just as a matter of whether somebody uh, endures physiological or physical suffering uh, as a part of their condition, but living with a disability itself is a form of suffering. And unfortunately, we've got a very nasty history in Canada of believing that there's suffering in living with a disability and a suffering by society having people with disabilities in it. Uh, because of the, mm -hmm. the concessions and socioeconomic uh, accommodations that have to be made. And unfortunately, with the uh, with this legislation that's being pushed through, if you open that up to people with mental illnesses, without first having made the proper accommodations for people with mental illnesses, so putting through pharmacare to make sure that if you do require medication, as I require medication, that it's not an onerous burden to pay for the medication and it's not taking like a quarter out of your income. Like if I was, for example, living on the Ontario Disability Savings Plan, or uh, if I was living on ODSP, or if I was living on the, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the disability uh, program, then it would take probably about a quarter of my income to mm -hmm. cover just my medical expenses, just for drugs. And then we're talking right. about being a therapist and having regular meetings, regular weekly meetings, which is generally what you would have to do to, to maintain healthy supports, you know, that would eat up everything, literally everything. So the only difference between myself now and myself uh, 10 years ago, myself 15 odd years ago, is that I have the financial support because I, I do okay now, I'm financially stable. I have the social network support I have people around me that are, are very supportive of me and, and have helped me, you know, maintain my health. But I, you know, I, I didn't have that 15, 20 years ago. I had, I had a supportive family, but I had a family that I was still trying to like struggle to get them to understand what it right. was that I was dealing with. I didn't have anything in the way of public health support or any of that. I had basically no one to turn to. I wasn't properly diagnosed. 
and at the, if I had been diagnosed at that point, you know, the way that I interpret um, people trying to help me or people around me, you know, being frustrated with this, you know, the repeated anxiety attacks, the, uh, the, the, the breakdowns, the bouts of suicidal ideation, which is something that I have no control over whatsoever and can last up to a few days at a time. You know, I interpret that as me being such a burden on the people that it's better if I wasn't here. And it's that downward spiral that I think, well, not even that I think, that I know, I, I know, like I've, I've done plenty of studying about this, that drives people towards acting on the suicidal urges in the first place. But the thing to know is that if, if properly treated and properly supported, you know, the reoccurrence of suicide attempts drops drastically. And, and the the thing that's needed is proper social support, proper financial support for people. And offering right. made first before we've been able to do that is, in a sense, like a constructive dismissal from life. And, and that really scares me. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. And I mean, you use the word eugenics in your piece, and a lot of people would take issue with that. But I'm not sure what else we, we would call this, because I think it's simply naive to think that if you allow this, that it won't be abused because you hear stories in your private life or my private life all the time of, you know, someone who's got someone in their life that just a burden to them. And they think, oh, maybe whether it's dementia, Alzheimer's, you just I don't think we want to go down that slope of playing God or choosing someone else's fate, which I think this would open the door to. No, absolutely. We've we've essentially socialized. We've socialized the economic conditions that exacerbate, accelerate and sometimes even like cause or precipitate. Uh, some of these disabilities, and we've privatized everyone's ability to deal with it. So you yourself are responsible for your own mental health. It, that's that's essentially what happens when you don't have pharmacare, you don't have uh, mental health uh, coverage for public health care. And unless you have employer-sponsored health care, then you're pretty much out in the cold by yourself. There are hardly any options available to you. I got a flood of emails, direct messages on Twitter, et cetera, from people who are saying that they've dealt with the same thing. After yeah. they've done the responsible thing and gone to the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, there's just limited options available to them. And unfortunately, you know, if uh, made were offered to them, they've said, yeah, I might be tempted to take it myself because I don't feel like I have any other options. And that's, yeah. that's, not, a, that's not a failure on their part. That's a social failure. Yeah, and certainly this pandemic has, I think, forced it wide out into the open because uh, it really has broken a whole lot of people. Well, it was a very uh, generous piece you wrote with a very, very personal uh, struggle, but I think uh, it's a really interesting um, read, certainly, as people go through, um, you know, this issue with Bill C-7, and they should stop and think of the consequences uh, in the slippery slope that this poses. So I appreciate you joining us. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. That is Andre Damis, and the piece is in the Globe and Mail if you want to read it, but this is an issue that is before the Senate right now, and if people don't wake up, it's just going to get pushed on through, and this is not one of those things that I think we want pushed right through. Stay with us here. Alex Pearson on point, and this is Global News Radio. We all know we'll be hearing from the well-funded gun lobby, and we all know there will be plenty of politics, but let's not forget what this is about, saving lives. We're not targeting law-abiding citizens who own guns to go hunting or for sport shooting. The measures we're proposing are concrete and practical. Well, there's Mr. Trudeau, and it all sounds like a government taking action against gun crime, but of course then you read the fine print, 
and not the headline. And what Trudeau's government's uh, new gun legislation does is uh, nothing other than make legal gun owners more of a target because it does nothing to actually confront gang and gun violence. It does nothing that will stop carnage all over the GTHA. What it does is basically check off a campaign promise for his government and bring in changes that won't stop any of the crime, but will then further vilify legal gun owners while, you know, distracting from the real issue, which is their vaccine failures. That's just my take. Tony Bernardo is executive director of the Canadians Shooting Sports Association. He joins us now. Good to have you, Tony. Uh, always good to be had. Thanks. <laughs> So a lot was announced, um, little of it makes sense and little of it will make any difference, but what stands out to you as uh, the kind of big, big problems? Well, the first one, the one that, that really screams out at me is the, the ability of the police to be able to search and seize your property and home without a warrant. This is right. under and suspicion. And that is the red and yellow flag, uh, you know, provisions that they're putting in, which allows a neighbor or a friend or someone who's concerned about the person with the gun being a problem or a threat or a danger to themselves. Specifically, yes, anybody, anybody who makes a threat or sorry, who makes an allegation against a firearms owner is immediately followed by a police raid. Or they, you know, I mean, I, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but when they come through the door, it's mm -hmm. usually a battering ram and a SWAT team. Mm -hmm. And they come in and then they trash the place um, and and take all your, your possessions, anything that wants. Okay. This is one of the things that's in here. It doesn't say they may take any firearm. It says they may take anything. Anything. Yeah, it's the small print of this that should concern uh, people. I mean, look, there's only about 50 days left uh, for them to get, you know, anything done in this session. I don't think that this will get passed through. It could maybe bring the government down and take uh, take us into election. Who knows where it will go? For me, this is a distraction piece of legislation so that we don't talk about the COVID failures of this government. But what, um, you know, what bothers me is when you got a guy like Bill Blair up there using the, the shooting of a 14-year-old girl who's fighting for her life, saying that legislation like this would maybe save a girl like that, when that's not true because... First of all, you know, if it's an illegal gun, none of this does anything to address that. No, that's right. And it, it, all it is is measures being taken against people who haven't broken the law. Because if they had, to, had broken the law, they wouldn't have their firearms licenses. They wouldn't have their firearms. You're dealing with people who are so clean they squeak. They're checked out by the RCMP every single day under the continuous eligibility program. This right, is the and he's going after. Right, and and then they talk about this buyback program, something that has not worked in any U.S. state that it's been brought back because what it has done is allowed people to take their guns back, then upgrade to a better gun or a more expensive gun. But this is a voluntary buyback program, and if you listen to those, uh, I heard a woman speaking who was uh, involved um, as a victim in the Ecole. Polytechnique shooting, and she said, you know, if you want to stop the gun carnage, then you don't make it voluntary. It would have to be mandatory. So there again is this gray area where it's voluntary, and gangbangers, to my knowledge, don't really like to chain their gun because they can rent them out. Well, sure, and of course, they wouldn't be eligible to, uh, to turn the gun in for money anyway. It's only the specific 1,500 makes and models of legal gun that the feds banned back on May 1st that would be eligible for this buyback. 
The thing is, the buyback's not even in this. He says there'll be a buyback, there'll be new safe storage procedures. They're not in the bill. There's nothing in it at all. Right. And and he says, yes, you're, you know, off the top of, of my introduction, you know, he's talking about you're going to hear from the gun lobbyists and all these people fighting back, but it's not aimed at going after legal gun owners. And I guess he's talking about guys like you. Well, I guess he must be. The only people this affects is legal gun owners. There's not a single thing in here that affects gangs, not a single thing in here that affects illegal guns. Um, you know, if there's more money allocations going out to CBSA to interdict at the border, mm. I think that's great. I think that's wonderful, and I would support that. But I haven't seen that in here yet either. And of course, it's well, I did. 40, there was 42 million uh, allocated, but then you read the fine print, and that's over five years. And so we're talking five, six million dollars a year to stop the actual area. A vulnerability that actually might make a difference because that's where the guns are coming through or uh, through Canada and places like that between the um, uh, the reserve, uh, you know, with the, the organized crime. They don't address that. Any, no government ever addresses that. No. And of course, does that include the money they cut from CBS, CBSA's budget last year? Probably not. I don't know. They, yeah, I don't know cut, about they that. Cut, they cut millions of dollars out of CBSA's budget. So this is just a tiny little bit going back in. And they keep promising to do this stuff, but they never actually do it, Alex. You know, it, it, it's, it's always about ideology. It's always about, you know, going and slapping the lawful gun community who doesn't commit the crimes. And it, it's some kind of a thing they have going, and I can't say I understand why they have this constant vitriol for our community. We don't do anything wrong. Well, because, I mean, it plays very well to downtown urban Toronto, uh, which seems to buy this up, um, you know, not really recognizing that the gun crime ravaging our streets is is the gun crime that they should be stamping out. And so it does appeal to big urban centers, um, you know, and there are actually quite a few gun owners in Toronto, 40,000 last I read. That's right. And and now what are they supposed to do uh, if the city of Toronto goes ahead and, say, bans all their firearms? Now what? They're, they're supposed to move? Yeah. I guess that's it. You know, we're, we're, now, we're now being rated as second-class citizens. We're being forced to move out of our homes by municipalities, or conversely, we are rated without a warrant. I mean, what is this? We're, where the heck are we living now? What happened to the rule you know, of law? Well, yeah, that's a good question or due process. But, you know, there is an awful lot of talk in press conferences that I've heard with this government, including this morning's, where they talk about mass shootings. They refer to Sandy Hook. They refer to all sorts of, you know, assault rifles and, and assault weapons, which are what people, you know, have the image of. But we don't have assault rifles in, in this country. And so no. are they going to reclassify a whole bunch of guns to make it fit this legislation? I, I think they have already. They've got 1,500 different makes and models of target rifles. Remember that in Canada, mm -hmm. no, mm -hmm. no semi-automatic firearm can have more than a five-shot magazine. And you can only shoot these firearms at a shooting range. They're target rifles. That's all they are. And, and so what, what are you hearing then from your members? Well, I mean, there's an awful lot of people that are pretty upset about this. 
I mean, we just had this, you know, ordering council gun ban last May. Then a year and a half ago, we had Bill C-71, which was contradictory to this bill. And so now they've had to go into this bill and remove portions of C-71 so that they didn't wind up with this schmozzle any bigger than the one they've already created. And now you're going to have the the ability of, of municipalities to pass their own gun laws, bylaws that carry the force of criminal law. So one of our Olympians goes to shoot a match on the other side of the province. How do they know when they're driving down Highway 11, for example, that each little municipality they go through doesn't have their mm-hmm. own set of laws? How do they know they're not in contravention of, of their law? And with this carrying the weight of the criminal code behind it, this makes a bylaw very, very strange thing. Certainly does, but you've seen what's happened in this pandemic with our civil liberties and charter rights. Uh, They've kind of gone out the window, so we'll wait and see, but something tells me that this is all just a bunch of smoke and mirrors um, because you guys are the easy target. Uh, Tony, appreciate speaking with you. We will talk again. Thank you, Alex. Take care. Tony Bernardo with the uh, Canadian Shooting Sports Association. So there you go. I'm Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio. We're not targeting law-abiding citizens who own guns to go hunting or for sport shooting. The measures we're proposing are concrete and practical, and they have one goal and one goal only, protecting you, your family, and your community. What are they thinking? I mean, that was my first thought when I read this news that the Trudeau government has partnered with Huawei which will sponsor leading-edge computer and electrical engineering research at Canadian universities. In other words, Huawei will give cash-strapped universities money, and I guess the government will match that money, and Huawei will then get access to our private data, advanced technology that will help China, you know, under the guise of research, um, spy on us and get information that is dangerous to not just our economic but national security interests. And even the top universities of our 5i partners have said no to this kind of deal. So it's a bit gobsmacking that Canada would do this despite the threat. And at the time when two Canadians, the two Michaels, remain jailed, now 800 days plus, in retaliation for the arrest and extradition of Huawei CEO Meng Wanzhou. Marcus Kolga joining us, expert in Russia and East Asian affairs, also a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute and founder of disinfowatch.org. Good to have you, sir. Always good to be on. Thanks. Thanks so much. There's a whole bunch of stuff on China in the last um, couple of days that kind of just got me wide-eyed and just kind of shocked. And it's this this research partnership. So it's kind of an arm length from the tr- the government, but they've allowed this partnership to between this Huawei and, and, and the universities to allow for funding projects in research. What, how could they even think to say yes to this? Yeah, it's, uh, it's mind-boggling. Um, I saw the news as well, and I, I, I didn't quite understand it. Um, you know, for the past Several years, uh, our own intelligence agencies, the Five Eyes intelligence agencies, everyone pretty much in the West has been warning about the threat of having any companies linked to the Chinese government um, working on research projects within uh, you know, any universities. And as you mentioned, um, most of these Western universities, the bigger ones in the United States and the UK and beyond, have mm-hmm. all sort of said, no thanks to Huawei's um, money and any sort of research partnerships. 
And, you know, even the prime minister in, in, in his uh, mandate letters uh, to the ministers um, has w- wrote and asked them to protect Canadian intellectual property. So the prime minister has also said, clearly indicated that this is a problem. So seeing that Huawei, who really does represent a significant uh, threat to our national security, our privacy, um, you know, all of these things, how they were able to partner up to the tune of you know $4.8 million in, in federal money to work with our universities to basically take our intellectual property, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's mind-blowing. Well, it is, but you know, they, they've managed to build a pretty vast network of these relationships and the universities are so desperate for money. I mean, maybe they're willing to turn a blind eye to what's good, you know, for the, the greater good of this country. Never mind the principle of why they would ever do a deal while two men are jailed. Um, with the the genocide of the Uyghur Muslims, and on and on it goes. Um, so I, I don't know how this will be allowed to stay, because even even the most partisan liberal is saying this cannot be allowed. No, and like I said, the, even the prime minister has has said that you know the thefts of our intellectual property is a problem. Um, and the other thing, you know, I understand that the universities are, are desperate for this funding, and Huawei's you know too eager to throw money at them. But there are other companies out there that are working on this technology that are trusted. You know, Nokia in Finland, yeah. Ericsson in Sweden, uh, you know, Samsung in, in South Korea. You know, these are companies that we can work with and we can be pretty sure that they're not going to pose a threat to our, our national security. So I think it's up to our, you know, our, the federal government and certainly these universities to start approaching these other companies to see how they can work together and, uh, and keep that research money flowing but in a safe way. Yeah. Uh, you know, but that that's just one little story. And then there was a story about the Canadian government, so the Trudeau government securing the support of 57 other countries. And this is a, in a, a joint condemnation of hostage diplomacy, though it comes with no promises to act yeah. against the countries, and out and out say China, that arrest foreign citizens as this diplomatic tool. We already have rules in the book in the Magnitsky um, sanctions that could be used. And this government is so scared to say anything. It's very clear. I mean, the prime minister today was asked if he would even call what's going on in China genocide. He wouldn't touch it. They are so terrified of China that they won't use tough language or just state the obvious. But now we're going to join, you know, 57 other countries to condemn countries that, you know, steal people off the street. Yeah, well, you know, I think we should congratulate Canada for taking the lead at least with that and getting this declaration signed by 57 or 58, I think it was uh, the final count. Um, now, you know, these states, these our allies and such, um, are all sort of condemning um, what is, you know, already made, being made illegal by the UN uh, Universal Human the Declaration on Human Rights. Um, mm. And they're just sort of reiterating that, which is, you know, I, I, that's good. It's a, it's a good start. Um, they're joining, um, you know, the Canadian government in ex- in expressing their condemnation of this sort of activity. But, you know, you're right. I mean, they're, you know, looking deeper into it. This is just a declaration. It's It's a piece of paper. It's some words on a piece of paper. And it's not the sort of thing that certainly the Chinese government, other governments that engage in, you know, hostage taking and state-to-state arbitrary detentions like Russia, Iran, and others, um, I'm not sure that this is going to serve to change their behavior. Um, you know, it, we need to make sure that there's a consequence 
for these mm-hmm. actions. And this, this declaration does not introduce any sort of consequences. And you mentioned, you know, there's an easy one, sanctions. We have passed yeah. the Sergei Magnitsky law, but for some reason, the government has been reluctant to use it ever since really passing it in 2018. Um, but that could um, be used as a tool, as a consequence for this sort of detention. But, you know, this declaration, just it, there's no mention of that. It's just, again, a repeated condemnation of you know, what should be done in, in any case. Yeah, I mean, and even when um, Soyer O'Toole, as you know, came out this morning and said we should not be sending Canadian athletes to the Beijing yeah. Games and that we shouldn't even be holding the Games in, in Beijing, um, you know, and the Prime Minister was asked if he agreed with that. And he, again, he would not touch it, would not give an answer, just kind of, you know, glossed over it. But this is obviously a conversation that's not going to go away. And I don't really know how any of the Five Eye partners or any Western nation can in good conscience. And it's not fair to the, the athletes, but the the Games could and, and they have have time to do it, put them somewhere else. Yeah, sure. I mean, there are countries nearby that have the infrastructure in place. You know, we're just, I mentioned Korea, you know, Korea is not yeah. too far um, and you could quickly move the, the games over there. Um, look, I mean, there's so much disagreement within the government about this. You have liberal members who support yeah. a boycott and a, and a, and a change of venue. Um, you know, the conservatives certainly have articulated a pretty clear position on this. Uh, members of the NDP and Bloc have also said that we should be boycotting this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and what all of this really speaks to, uh, Alex, is, you know, unfortunately, the, the foreign policy of this current government is completely incoherent. Um, right. They don't know, they don't seem to know which way they're going on what. Um, you know, when we're, you know, they talk about defending Canadian interests, but we're not seeing any action. And, you know, I think the boycott of these, of these uh, upcoming uh, games in Beijing is just one place where, you know, we could take a stand. We could make a deck. If we're going to say something and if we want to take a position, this is a, this is a perfect opportunity to do that. But I don't know. We seem to be completely paralyzed when it comes to China, Russia, Iran, any of these totalitarian uh, regimes that really does pose a threat. And, it, you know, I'm, I'm not... Sure, I completely understand why. It's, it's, very, it's mind-boggling as to what the government is going to do next on any of these, uh, in any of these uh, situations. Yeah, well, they're going to have to make a decision sooner or later. And I think the athletes are going to have to be asked themselves, you know, are you okay going there while, you know, the two Michaels are there, the Uyghur Muslims are, are being, um, you know, tortured, and, and everyone's going to have to do some self-reflection. But at some point, someone should stand on the right side of history. And I do think Canadians, by and large, would support that. Well, but these athletes have also been told, if they do go over yes. there, please it's don't true. say anything. So, you know, I, I, I just, you know, I, I don't know what, they're, what these athletes are supposed to be thinking at this point. Um, so we'll, we'll just have to see. They do, the government needs to take a position, though. As you've mentioned, I mean, there's, I mean, there's so many different issues, including the Uyghurs, the the to Michaels, um, we have to we have to stand up at some point um, and and defend our interests. Right now, it's just it's not happening. Yeah, no kidding. Stay tuned. All right, we'll talk again because there's always something to talk about these days when it comes to China. Marcus, appreciate it. Anytime, Alex. Thanks for having me on. Marcus Kolga joining us here tonight. Stay with us here, Alex Pearson on point, and this is Global News Radio. You of course can join us Monday through Friday, starting six thirty sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio.